0: Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries, with founder and director Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing.
1: Well, when you open the newspaper, when you don't do that anymore, (laughs) you click on the news, you turn on the TV channel. And generally, you see a lot of bad things. We don't really report good things, do we? You see a random murder. You see policemen executed for no reason, from shot from behind. You see babies killed in drive-by shootings. You read about a sex ring broken up of children being sold across the United States for evil purposes. And you shake your head and you might say why, but you also wonder what good can come from that. Where do we go from here? Where do they go from here, those people who were involved in those lives? It's an evil world that we live in, and um, and there's a lot of stories to be told. We're going to look at a story today that involves the evil done to a person named Joseph, and we're going to look at his story. But we're also mindful that we each have a story where we've encountered evil in one way or another. So if we were to turn the channel to you, what would we see in your life or in your background? Today we're not going to answer the question, why is there evil? Why did God allow evil? Those are philosophical questions for another message, another day. Instead, today we're going to talk about what can God do with that, that happens to us. We all like a good story, and Joseph certainly is that. It takes 12 chapters of scripture. It has all kinds of twists and turns and unexpected things happen. Uh, and some very bad things happen. Some very good things happen. Uh, but it's a tremendous story. And of course, we can't read it now, but I'm going to review the high points in the story. And, um, let's see. We're going to just review the high points in the story to remind ourselves about it and what happened. It all started when Joseph was 17 years old. The story in Genesis 37, at least, starts when he's 17 years old. The youngest of his brothers, uh, Father Jacob, favored him and gave him that famous robe of many colors, which caused the other brothers to become very envious. In fact, the word used in Scripture is they hated him. So when the father sent Joseph to check on his brothers, and they saw him coming, they plotted to kill him. And Reuben stepped in and said, no, why do, Why should we kill him? Let's just throw him in this pit, and we'll take his robe, we'll dip it in goat's blood, and we'll give it to his father, and told him that a lion ate him. So Reuben at least saved his life, but then along come some Ishmaelite traders who were heading to Egypt, and... They said they come up with the idea. Let's sell them. Let's sell Joseph to the Ishmaelite traders, and they do. They bring, of course, the robe to Jacob, and Jacob mourns the death of his son Joseph. While Joseph is being transported to Egypt, and there in Egypt, he's sold to the house of one of the Pharaoh's court officials named Potiphar. And um, so he goes from a situation of being hated, a situation of being sold, which is evil in itself. Talk about human trafficking. His brothers, it says, pulled Joseph up, lifted him up out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Is that a coincidental number or what? What do you think? And they took him to Egypt. A place he had never been, a place far from home, a place whose language, of course, he could not speak and a culture he did not know or recognize. And so he goes to Potiphar, he's sold finally to Potiphar, this rich court official. And he goes into his house and there God favors him with Potiphar's favor. And because Joseph's character is commendable and, and strong and he was a man of integrity, he rises and uh, to great power in the household. Potiphar puts him over the, the whole household, whole, which is not just be his family, but all of his servants and everybody else involved. Quite a big responsibility for a rich person in his in Potiphar's position, um, and Joseph to assume responsibility for all that. But Potiphar had a wife who had evil intentions. She was trying to seduce Joseph, as the story goes, and he resisted. He did not want to betray his master or his God, he said. But one day she grabbed him by the robe and tried to get him to lay with her. And he fled, leaving the robe in her hand, which she used later as evidence to accuse him of attempted rape to her husband, Potiphar. And Potiphar throws him in prison. You ever been falsely accused of something? Well, that's a pretty serious charge. And so he sits in prison. For two years, he sits in prison. There he meets a butler and a baker, also imprisoned by Pharaoh. Pharaoh's butler and baker, and they have dreams, and and Joseph interprets those dreams, and he and he tells the uh, baker, hey, uh, the butler, good news, you're going to be released. Uh, the baker, bad news, you're going to be killed, executed. And sure enough, that happened. But he told the baker, he said, when you get out, would you please remember me to Pharaoh? And of course, the baker promptly forgot. Uh, so there, Joseph languished in prison. For two years, certainly, with fighting feelings of hopelessness and betrayal, wondering what would happen to him. Well, it happened that Pharaoh had a dream. It's a it's this dream about the the fat cows and the skinny cows. You remember seven fat cows and seven skinny cows. And and Joseph, and he doesn't understand what the dream means. And he says, "Is there anybody that can interpret these dreams?" And then. The butler says, well, you know what? I was in prison with this guy and he could interpret dreams. And so he called him before Pharaoh and Pharaoh asked him to interpret the dream. The dream basically meant that the land of Egypt was going to be prosperous for seven years and have abundance. And then there's going to be seven years of famine. And that made sense to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh understood that that was the proper interpretation. And God had given Joseph that interpretation. So he raised Joseph up to the number two position in the land so that Joseph used his position to gather all the food he could in those in the years those seven prosperous years, so that he could feed the nation uh in the seven years of famine that were coming, and that's what he devoted himself to doing under Pharaoh. Well, the famine was so bad it it affected Canaan also, and because of that, Jacob sent his sons, except for the youngest of his what he thought was his only sons to Egypt to get food, to trade for food. So Jacob sends all of his sons except Benjamin to Egypt, and there they they trade and barter for food. Um, But it was there also that Joseph saw his brothers, and he recognized them. And he recognized them, and he silently wept. Well, he gives them their food. He puts the money back in the sacks. They leave and they go back to their father. And when they get there, they realize the money is still in their sacks, which scared them because they know that they can be accused of something wrongdoing. And uh, they're afraid. And, oh, by the way, they tell Joseph that they have a younger brother named Benjamin. And uh, the father has him. And Joseph was very close to his youngest brother, his younger brother, and he wanted to see him. And He said, well, I'm I'm going to uh, uh, keep keep you here until I see Joseph. So they left Simeon anyway. And they said, we'll come back with him. We'll leave Simeon with you. And that was kind of the deal. So they go back to the father and they explain the situation. And Jacob says, besides finding the money and having all that bad news, Jacob says, no, we're not going to send Benjamin down, you've already lost one son, I'm not going to lose another. And that's the way it goes until the famine gets worse. And Jacob has no choice but to send them back with Benjamin so that they can just survive and get food. So in the second visit, they come back with Benjamin. And there the the story kind of unfolds in an interesting way. Uh, Joseph sees them. He invites them to dinner. He sends them off. He puts a silver cup in Benjamin's bag. And while they're going back, uh, Joseph sends out people to go and find them and arrest them because Benjamin, they discovered in Benjamin's sack that silver cup. So they're arrested. They're brought back to Joseph. And Joseph finally, to make a long story short, finally reveals himself to his brothers He reveals himself to his brothers and tells them with divine insight. He says, now, therefore, do not do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. And it says again that he embraced them and wept with them. And then he tells them, go get Jacob, your father, and bring him down here and I'll take care of him. And so they return to Canaan and they get Jacob and Jacob and his household pack packs up all the children and and the household and the servants and all of his goods. And they come down into Egypt and there Joseph does take care of them. And indeed, he saves he saves Jacob. You know, that Jacob's name is Israel. Also, he was named Israel. And so in essence, Joseph here saves Israel. Israel. Israel was not yet a nation. He was just a person. But from Jacob would come the nation of Israel through his descendants. Joseph, sold for 20 pieces of silver, saves Israel. Now, there's many things we can see here that lead us to the example of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, which I think is entirely intentional in the story. So, Jacob... His family and the nation, in essence, is delivered and preserved forever. Well, things are going well, but Jacob dies. He blesses his sons and he dies. Now the brothers are scared. And they say, well, now that our father is dead, surely Joseph is going to take retribution on us. He's going to pay there's time for paybacks since dad isn't here to protect us.
0: And so they go to, they send some messengers to Joseph to beg him for forgiveness. And Joseph says to them, do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God?
1: But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So 12 chapters of this story of Joseph, his brothers, his father, all are condensed like a funnel down to that lesson in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20, that what men intend for evil, God can use for good. In the context of the story, that evil could have wiped out the future nation of Israel, but God used it for good to prosper a people that would become the nation of Israel. Well, what do we learn from the story or what does this story show us? Well, I think, first of all, shows us that God has a sovereign plan. Joseph, with his divine wisdom and insight, was able to have some perspective to step back from the, the whole story of his life and all the unfolding events and see that God was at work in some way.
0: That God can use evil for good. That requires some faith also. That God is at work.
1: Another thing I think we see in this story is that you have to forgive those who have done evil against you. Just like Joseph forgave his brothers. There were many people involved in causing Joseph pain, but we never see him ever angered at anyone or embittered by anyone. But only willing to forgive. He forgave his brothers. I think another thing that the story shows us is that God has a purpose for your life as he had a purpose for Joseph's life. Joseph went all through all of those things for a reason. There was a purpose. Joseph understood that purpose. He understood it was his role in life to deliver God's people who would become a nation who would deliver the Messiah Who would be
0: the savior of the world? But he could only get there by cooperating with God's purpose. That's a fascinating story, isn't it? Joseph had a fascinating
1: life and a fascinating story. But, like my mom used to say to me all
0: the time, she says, Everybody has a story. I have a story. You have a story. What's your story? Let me tell you a little bit about my story. I, I kind of do this because on, on uh, the 4th of July, I
1: always like to post something positive on Facebook about our country because I, I'm proud to live in America, and I think it's a wonderful country, and God's using us around the world. And there's been, there was so much negativity going on, and there's so much uh, violence at you know, that time of the year that I just posted something about uh, where my family on my father's side came from, how they came from China and so forth. And I'll tell you a little bit about that story, but it got 980 shares. Now I usually don't get half a dozen shares on anything I post on Facebook. 980 shares. And some people were saying really would like to hear more about it. The truth is I don't know a lot more than what I put on Facebook because it starts like this. There's a little girl eight years old in China, southern China probably, because she spoke Cantonese, which is a dialect around Hong Kong area, where most of the commercial trade and, and merchants would land, land and do business. So it starts there with an eight-year-old girl whose parents were evidently very, very poor. And as some Chinese people would do, they would sell the girl in the family. And so she was sold to a rich American Chinese businessman who brought her to the United States. My grandmother, who I'm talking about, said that her first memory of coming to the United States was helping her master uh, bag and wrap
0: opium. So what kind of trade or export importer he was, we have some idea.
1: But I can only imagine that, you know, a few years ago, about eight years ago or so, um, I stopped at Hong Kong on the way back from the Philippines to see a very distant relative, the only distant relative we know. I stopped to see him. And as you land outside of Hong Kong on an island and you take an express train into Hong Kong, and as we cross the Hong Kong harbor, you see Hong Kong peak in the distance. I couldn't help but think that's the last sight
0: that my grandmother had <clears throat> as she left the country. A little frightened eight-year-old girl not knowing why her parents sold her or where she was going.
1: On a big ship going across the ocean where many would die. But she made it to America. She, she was uh, worked for this master and then she was sold to a second master. Uh, at the age of 12. You see, young Chinese girls were a valuable commodity in the late 1800s, around the turn of the century, because uh, many Chinese men had come over over to seek their fortune in gold, work on the railroads, and, and were sometimes deceived into coming over and really became indentured servants themselves. But the population of Chinese people was 20 men to one woman. And so there was a whole trade in young girls who were brought over. They were called musai. Musai, musai were used as prostitutes, concubines, domestic servants, or all of the above. So at the age of twelve, she was sold again to someone, and by the age of thirteen, she was pregnant. She didn't know what was pregnant meant. She just knew that something was funny happening with her body. She, the first two little girls she had died. And then she had a little boy that lived, and he became uh, like a distant uncle from us that we finally were able to find in New York City at some point. But when he was four years old, she decided that she couldn't take this anymore. She was 17, my grandmother, who took the American name Mamie. She decided she couldn't take it anymore, and she broke through the wall of her bedroom to escape. What do you do when you're a 17-year-old? You are 17 year old you can not read English. You can't speak English. You don't know the culture. What do you do? We don't know what she did exactly. She said she worked in a circus as a fortune teller. And then she said that she did things that
0: she would never tell us. Somehow she made her way to uh,
1: Washington, D.C. as a young lady. We don't know exactly that part of the story either. And there she met a man. Um, who was named Chan Bing, but he took it, he worked on the railroads, <clears throat> somehow got to Washington, D.C., and became very prominent in the community, became the mayor of the Wa- Chinatown in Washington, D.C., which was pretty large at the time, hardly exists now. His name was Chan Bing, and she married him, and he took the American name Charlie. So they married, and uh, they had a little girl. And uh, this newspaper article here from the Washington newspaper, uh talks about the birth of this little girl because the birth of a chinese baby in Chinatown was always a big occasion and and the reporter really messes the story up in all kinds of ways imagining things but anyway there it is that little baby died and then in 1910 my grandmother had another baby with Charlie and uh, his name was Robert and Robert became my father <clears throat> And he he grew until his teenage years when um, the Great Depression hit and my grandfather, who I'd never met, decided to go back to China and take all the money and desert his family, which is exactly what he did, leaving my grandmother and my father destitute. Somehow she was able to manage the restaurant until forced to close that he had, uh, a restaurant business. And she moved in to live with relatives, but somehow she managed to put my father through college. He graduated from Purdue University with a degree in civil engineering and worked for the government for 35 years as a civil engineer. You can still drive through Washington, DC, and see some of the things that he had helped design and helped help build. And so she raised a, this boy by herself. and she And then when he married my mother, Uh, My grandmother lived with us for 17 years. I knew her for the first 17 years of my life until she died at the age of 90. Or at least
0: we think the age of 90. She never really knew her birthday. Well, that's my story. What was meant for evil or used for evil,
1: whatever the parents' motives, we don't know. But certainly somewhere along the line, people intended evil and used her for evil. God used for good. If, if I was in Hong Kong at the time, if I could travel time, just like I think you would, you would have, you would have said to those parents, don't do that. Don't do that. Stop. If you could have pulled her off the boat, you probably would have done that yourself. But if we had stopped that from happening? I don't think I'd be here preaching to you today. I don't think I'd be anywhere preaching. I might be working in a rice paddy. I might be a fisherman, most likely a fisherman. But I don't think I'd be here today. But you can't say what if. There's really no such thing as what if. There only is what is. And what happened was bad. But what resulted is good. So when everybody this summer was talking about who's to blame for the violence and the burnings and the murders and, and uh, the interracial conflict, everybody's talking
0: about this. and I'm saying, who's to blame? What difference does it make? It happened. It happened. Make good of it. See God's purpose. Who's going to pay me back for anything? Nobody owes me anything.
1: So I had to write what I did. What about your story? Everybody has a story. I wonder if we were to go back into your ancestry, what would we find? Would we find somebody in prison? Would we find somebody
0: murdered? Would we find somebody... Who died of HIV? How about your life? Would we find a marriage broken unfairly? Someone who cheated? And you didn't ask for that or deserve that. What would we find in your story? We've all encountered evil
1: to some degree. The question is not why did it happen? Why did God
0: allow it to happen? The only question is, what good can God make of it? What about your story?
1: I think we can take these lessons from Joseph and apply them to our own lives.
0: Look for God's sovereignty in your situation. It happened. You can't change the
1: past. You can't choose your ancestors. You can't rewrite history. It happened.
0: but. If God is sovereign, and you belong to Him, you have the assurance that God will use
1: all things in your life for good. Look for His sovereignty. You may not be able to see it yet. You may not still be able to figure out why did that happen. And someday you might. But you know what? You might go to your grave and never know the reason why, but the moment you open your eyes in heaven, you're going to say, "Huh, of course. Now I get it. But to get from there from here to there, it requires faith that God is in control. That He is a sovereign God. Can you trust God that He can use whatever evil has happened to you in your life for good?
0: Second thing that we can learn from Joseph is that we need to forgive those who have done evil against us. You see, to curse your
1: past is to really curse your future. To live with that bitterness inside, it doesn't hurt the person that hurt you. It only hurts you. It only crushes you. Can you say that you forgive because God has taught me to forgive and he's even commanded us to forgive as we are forgiven in Christ Jesus? Remember when Jesus hung on the cross, the only person who never really deserved to die but was mistreated all of his life? was abused verbally, physically, and then tortured on a cross. And what did he say from the cross? as He looked down on his murderers. He said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. You can't say that unless you know that things are working for good
0: and that God's got all things under control. Which, of course, he does. One of the hardest things to
1: do was to listen to the news in uh, one year ago, a little over a year ago, in 2019, to learn that a a woman policeman was coming home from a a long day and she opened the door to what she thought was her apartment and there was a man inside and she thought it was an intruder and she shot him.
0: She shot Bochum John, a good church-going fellow who never deserved to die.
1: Most believe it was just a tragic mistake, as she claims. Nobody really denies it was a tragic mistake. She did was found guilty and she was sentenced to prison. What a terrible tragedy. Why why does something like that happen? I don't know. And maybe she's still trying to figure it out. But at the trial,
0: at the trial, Bochum John's younger brother, Brant, stood up to make a statement. And let me... Read some
1: of what he said to her. He said to Amber Geiger, the woman who's being sentenced, he said, I love you just like anyone else and I'm not going to hope you rot and die. Brant John said while reading a victim impact statement in court, he said, I personally want the best for you. I wasn't going to say this in front of my family. I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you because I know that's exactly what Bochum." would want for you. Give your life to Christ. I think giving your life to Christ is the best thing Bochum would want for you. And then he turned to the judge and he said, Judge, can I give her a hug? And the judge was a bit surprised and finally she said, okay. So he went over to Amber Geiger
0: and he gave her a big old hug and he said, I forgive you. And they both wept. They're on the path to something meaningful in life that came through that forgiveness.
1: You have to forgive those who have done evil against you. It happened. Nothing can be paid that will undo the bad. But forgiveness can remove the damage and the bitterness and allow God to work. And then the third thing, use your life for good. God can take that and turn it Into good as he did with Joseph, as he did in my situation, and he can do it in your situation as well. Thank God for the circumstances in your life. It's hard. You don't thank God for evil, but you thank him for the circumstances as things are. And for using them for good and for his glory. You can't change what happened. You can't change
0: where you're from. You can't change where you're who your family is. You can't change the past but we can be changed and be useful in the future if you
1: accept as this is part of his purpose for your life. You might wish that you could have changed things. I think we all probably would. But it's too late for that. You know, if if I was in the Garden of Eden, I would have slapped that fruit out of Adam and Eve's hand. I said, don't eat that. You don't know what you're doing. This is going to cause a lot of problems. On the other hand, would we know how much God loves us? Would we know the beauty of His grace? Unless the human race had fallen as far as it did. Would we take it for granted? Would we ever be able to experience a redeeming love? Just coincidentally, I think, on Facebook floating around are the remarks of Kimberly Henderson from Proverbs 31 Ministries this week. I just want to read some of what she wrote. She said, I would have pulled Joseph out, out of that pit, out of that prison, out of that pain. And I would have cheated nations out of the one God would use to deliver them from famine. I would have pulled David out, out of Saul's spear-throwing presence, out of the caves he hid in, out of the pain of rejection. And I would have cheated Israel out of a God-hearted king. I would have pulled Esther out, out of being snatched from her only family, out of being placed in the position she never asked for, out of the path of a vicious, power-hungry foe. And I would have cheated a people out of the woman God would use to save their very lives. Again, I would have pulled Jesus off the cross, off of the road that led to suffering and pain, off the path that meant nakedness and beatings, nails and thorns. And I would have cheated the entire world out of a Savior
0: out of salvation, out of an eternity filled with no more suffering and no more pain. Because Jesus died on the cross and went through the suffering, because you and
1: I are allowed to suffer, the Scripture teaches us that the weight of suffering in this world will be nothing compared to the weight of glory that we will experience in eternity. We cannot appreciate the weight of glory without the weight of suffering from the evil that comes in this world. So, as I said, you can get philosophical about it. Ask why there's evil and why God allowed it to happen. That's not what I'm trying to answer today. I'm trying to simply say that God can use whatever happened for his good. We can't change the fact of what has happened in the past. But we know that God can use it for good. There will always be evil until Jesus comes. And maybe the worst things in life are yet to happen to you. But when they do, remember that God is in control and He can use it for good. That's what it means to walk by faith. If God can use the death of His only beloved Son who never did a wrong thing in His life for our good, then certainly He can use whatever evil life throws at you. But you have to see it through the eyes of faith. In fact, you really have to see it through the the lens of Jesus Christ because the death of Christ proved that God loves us. He demonstrated his love for us in this, that Christ died for us while we were still sinners. There's no greater love. There's no greater proof that God loves you than that his innocent son died on the cross for you. And when we accept that as being true and seeing the worst evil in the world that was ever committed turn to our good so that we could spend eternity with God, now we're seeing life through the lens of faith, through the lens of Jesus Christ. But to see life through Jesus Christ, you have to know Him as your Savior. The One who came and died, died for you to pay the penalty for your sins. And then He rose from the dead so that He could give us eternal life. Should we believe in Him? Simply believe His promise that whoever trusts in Him, believes in Him, will live forever. Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? I'm not saying you'll immediately understand why all the bad things in your life have happened, but you'll, you'll ha- now have a lens to look through that God has given you in Jesus Christ so that you can begin to understand your life and in li- and, and view of eternity. Trust Him today as your Savior if you have not yet done that. Trust in God with the
0: things that happen in your life. Let me have a word of prayer with you. And so, as I pray today, I want to ask,
1: have you believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you trusted Him as the One who died for your sins? Or are you still trying to be good enough, earn your way to heaven? keep all the rules, be religious. That doesn't work. The Bible says we are saved by grace, a free gift, through faith that's trusting in Him and His promise. Would you do that today? Just put your faith in Jesus Christ if you've never done that before. If you're doing that for the first time today, putting your faith in Christ as your Savior for the first time today, would you just slip your hand up so I can see it real quickly? Put your hand up and put it down. Is there anybody who said, I want to do that today? I want to walk out of here with eternity in my heart, I want to live forever with Him. Is there anyone? Well, Father, we're certainly grateful for all that You've done for us. We're certainly grateful for the Lord Jesus Christ who gives us perspective of eternity that, that helps us to deal with with evil in this world. We thank You that someday He will return and will conquer and there will be no more evil, no more tears, no more sorrow. But for now, Lord, help us live by faith. Help each of us live by faith. And I know that there's lives here who bear deep, deep scars. Deep scars, but those scars, let those scars be reminders that you're in charge and use those scars for your good. We commit our lives to you. In Jesus' name,
0: amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.